0: Welcome back to the Ridley Institute podcast. My name is Sam Fornicker. I'm your host. And you've joined us for the pre-anta penultimate, uh, that is, the fourth to last podcast before we break for the summer. Uh, one of those upcoming podcasts is very exciting indeed. That will be round two of our new Parker Society series on Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, looking specifically at Cranmer's mature Eucharistic theology. Alice Silio Evans back in the saddle for that. The other three conversations though, of which today is the first, all form something of a piece. It's always struck me that as summer rolls around, many of us travel to the beach, to the mountains, to our grandparents in Boise, whatever. In my experience, these brief absconsions have a wonderful disruptive effect, right? What do I mean? I mean, they get us out of the natural and built environment in which we live So that we begin to register that our place is a particular place, a place that's in significant respects, unlike that little mountain town or the sea resort or Boise or whatever. Well, as we're here on the cusp of summer, I want to begin to draw this first and I hasten to add inaugural year of the Ridley Institute podcast towards a close by focusing on the subject so many of us will be considering already the subject of place, of home, of belonging, of local culture. That'll be the driving concern for the next three conversations, our Scarlet Thread. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Jake Meter. Jake is contributing editor of Plow magazine, as well as editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, which is a wonderful online and print publication, well worth your investigation. You can learn more at mereorthodoxy.com. Uh, now, Jake is here for many reasons, the most obvious of which is his recent book published in February with University Press, What Are Christians For?, Life together at the end of the world, um, Jake. Really glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be. It is good to have you here, Jake. Just um, to get us going, let's 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 grease the wheels of conversation here. Tell tell us what's the best book? Uh, by the way, this is a cheeky question. It's going to sound like I'm asking you for retractions. I'm not. <laughs> I'm asking <laughs> for I'm asking for percolation. Um, tell us the best book that you've read in the last month and how it may be sharpening or clarifying or even reframing any particular element of the argument you made in What Are Christians For? We're going to get to the argument. Again, I'm not asking for retractions, just what have you been reading? How has it deepened or kept you percolating on on the argument?
1: I'll give two, actually. So the first one is a novel called No One Is Talking About This by a woman named Patricia Lockwood. Um A couple friends recommended it to me. So it's a weird book because it's this kind of first person stream of conscious, stream of conscience narration by an Instagram influencer. And if I recall correctly, you never actually find out her name or her boyfriend's name. Um, And so the first two thirds is kind of this like hilarious, but deeply irony poisoned, very online kind of thing. But then the last third, after the narrator's sister gives birth to a baby with uh, some birth defects that threaten the baby's life, the whole tone, everything about the book shifts dramatically. Um, It's one of the most pro-life things I've read in a long time. And I kind of suspect Lockwood would not be altogether happy at that reading of it. But it seems very hard to avoid that reading um, by the time you're done with the novel. And it just made me think, so I read that at the same time that I read Transcendent Kingdom by Yaa asi I hope I said her name right. Um, she's Ghanaian. Um, and they're both these books kind of dealing with questions of ultimate meaning and faith. And I found Lockwood far more satisfying. And I think it was because the book kind of landed on this child that is now here in the world and makes demands of us and has needs and kind of calls something forth out of us. Um, And the Giasi ends in a much more kind of vague, kind of mystical place on my reading anyway. Um, So the Lockwood would be one. Um, The other I just finished listening to was um, Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And it had been on my list for a while and I finally got around to reading it. And it's just a really good historical overview, um, sobering, but just laying out a lot of the, like, I mean, whatever you think of the broader kind of conversations, it, you benefit from reading that book because it's just laying out the history of kind of the interplay between the white church and race in the U.S., Um, And I've particularly been thinking about, like, what happens when churches ignore reform movements? Um, Because you you think about, we don't often talk about the Reformation in terms of moral reform and moral renewal, um, because we tend to camp out on justification and ecclesiology and those kind of issues, which is understandable. Those were the theological issues driving it. Um, But Martin Luther was furious at the ways the Italian church was exploiting poor people in Germany, and that drove a lot of his success. Um, The success of the Reformation wasn't that like a bunch of German peasants were sitting around arguing about justification one day, and they decided Martin Luther was right. Um, A lot of what drove the Reformation's success was many, 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 many German people who had been watching their country be exploited for centuries by Italian clergy, felt like they finally had someone sticking up for them. So there's always a moral dimension to ecclesial reform. And I feel like the, the Black church offers a reform movement of the American church. And I don't know that we've listened very well within the white church. I think some people have, but I think it's it's been a very mixed bag. And a lot of the things that we could learn if we would listen to this reform movement that God called into being within the American church, we'd be a healthier place. Um, and I think some of the urgency of that was um, driven home to me again by Jamar's book. Um, and even a lot of the ways what Jamar is doing kind of rhymes with what i was trying to do in the intro to my book talking about the ways that christianity in the us has often accommodated itself all sorts of injustices and um, corrupt practices and so it, th- those have been the two that have been on my mind in the last month but if you ask me if you ask me this question later this year i'd probably have totally different answers um, yeah no
0: that's no that's really fascinating and you know so i was going to say jake that I thought of, I thought of Tisby when I was reading early on in your book. Um, and a comment that I made to a friend is that your book refracted that whole conversation for me in a really, um, interesting way because it took a set of connections that I'd made in just a minute. I'm going to ask you if you would just give us kind of the elevator speech of the book. Um, uh, but it took a whole set of conversations that I was already deeply invested in kind of intellectually, you know, um, Mm -hmm about, I mean, even recently with the podcast, um, this has kind of come through, I talked with Jason Baxter in this this book on the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis. So we talked about Lewis's thoughts on the onset of modernity. Uh, you, of course, talk about uh, Lewis a good deal in your book as well. And um, the, great, the great break, the evil enchantment of modernity and so on. Mm-hmm. Integrating into that, however, the scholarship stroke, conversation on race as you did. Um, that was illuminating. Uh, so I'd, yeah, I'd love, I'd, I think maybe right at the start, before we get into any of the deeper questions, can can you give us the skeletal structure of the book, uh, yeah, yeah. the quick pitch? Uh,
1: the way a friend of mine described it is he said the first book was like the Benedict Option for Reformed Evangelicals, <laughs> and the second book is like Catholic Social Doctrine for Reformed Evangelicals. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah, I have feelings about both of those descriptions <laughs> yeah, bet, bet. I probably have mixed feelings because they're those are correct observations, and I don't know it just,
0: what to do. With it. You know, it just means there's something in it to make everybody mad, right? That's the that's
1: that's what Catholic <laughs> yeah. social teaching is is so good at, isn't it? There you go. Um, yeah. So the the way that the book started is I was at a Davenant Institute event several years ago, and Brian Dykema made the observation that at the same time that Leo the Thirteenth wrote *Rerum Novarum* which is kind of the beginning of modern Catholic social doctrine. Um, Leo is a contemporary of Kuypers and mm. So Leo is in Italy in the Roman church trying to address many of the same problems that the Neo-Calvinists are trying to address in the Netherlands. Right. The difference is that because the Roman church has institutional succession, you know, one Pope can pick up the last Pope's work. So, I mean, even now, like, People forget this now, but when he was pontiff, many called Pope Benedict the Green Pope because Mm of how much he wrote on environmental issues. And now that's kind of been eclipsed by Laudato Si by Pope Francis, but it's a development. Um, Because we don't have that institutional succession within the Protestant world, or at least we haven't, um, a lot of work that was promising and interesting kind of died on the vine. So it started out with me trying to just recover the neo-Calvinists and their critique of the revolution, um, by which they meant like Kuiper. When Kuiper talks about the revolution, he's basically just always talking about France and he's really mad about what happened in 1789, which, mm-hmm. fair enough, one should be. Um, but I read Grun, who was something of a father figure to Kuyper. Um, he was named Guillaume Grun van Prinsterer. Um, his books have, his books just been put out by Lexum press in the last few years. And when Grun talks about the revolution, he means this kind of extreme voluntarist turn where reality is basically whatever we say it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to write a book retrieving that kind of critique in favor of like, in the, the technical term would be more of a realist, like a recovery of natural law, the idea of a natural order, mm. a, revolution yeah so that was how it started and then i was working on it and i was like i can't write a book trying to retrieve social doctrine i was writing it like 2019 and 2020 i can't write a book like this at this moment and not talk about race issues and so i started reading more black church authors um and i remember reading willie jennings and jennings is a black theologian at yale and Jennings talks about the colonial turn basically being this move where you center yourself and you make everything around you a thing or just matter mm-hmm. that you can play with and shape however you want. And I remember sitting in my study reading that and I got done and I was like, this is just Groon, mm-hmm. but it's applied to the colonial era. Mm-hmm. So it kind of made me realize like that the Dutch guys are onto something, but this isn't starting in 1789 with France, or even in the like mid-eighteenth century with the Enlightenment. Like if you follow Jennings and you look at the material causes driving all of this, you can make a good case that a lot of this is starting in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. How people were talking about the New World, how they were talking about native cultures um, and peoples. Uh, it was constantly they were constantly being reduced to things um, look at how I mean one of the conquistadors Jennings him, is basically like look at how God provided for our righteous king and giving us all this wealth to aid us in our war with the Protestants and the Turks and you read it now and you're like but but that's not wealth like those are people groups and cultures and landscapes ways of life and you don't see any of that. You're just looking at it and all you're seeing is stuff that you can use to lift yourself up, to advance your political agenda, your kingdom. And so it stayed as this kind of retrieval of the Dutch Calvinists against the revolution for um, a more robust doctrine of creation and natural order. But I realized as I was working on it that the Black church has a ton to say about this and it just lands in a different register because you're dealing with different issues Mm. uh, than like what Abraham Kuyper is dealing with in the Netherlands in the 1890s. So it's it's still that neo-Calvinist retrieval. Um, Is there an alternative to revolutionary ways of life? But I was just drawing in a more eclectic, Range of voices to help me make the argument.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that was, so thank you, Jake. I mean, I think it's helpful just to have a kind of an overview of the book. So, the, obviously, it's a big book. What are Christians for? It's bristling with big ideas. And right there in the title is this concept of the end of the world. So, I want to mm. ask a slightly out there question, okay, and see if it prompts <laughs> anything with like the response. I think it might, I won't pretend to have read deeply, but dipping into Henri de Lubac. And he had this great line in Paradoxes of Faith: Christianity is not one of the great things of history; it is history which is one of the great things of Christianity. And um, that line came to me when I was reading your one of your, one of the discussions of sex in your book mm. um, about the way in which the Christian life liberates a certain living out of sexuality a a new way. Anyway, that line came to me. um, And it seemed relevant because I think of what you're what you're doing there in in the title. Um, Are you striking on the same anvil here as
1: De, de Lubac? So it's that's a really funny connection for you to make. Because after I wrapped the book up, I was like, I need some kind of reading project to help me kind of stay fresh and be writing regularly. And It's unfortunately kind of fallen off a little bit because of print magazine stuff. But um, two friends of mine told me to go read De (laughs) Lubac. And so I've been reading Drama of Atheist Humanism. I haven't gotten to the book that you mentioned yet. Um, But yes, as I'm reading Drama of Atheist Humanism, one of the arguments De Lubac makes there is that a large part of the kind of modern backlash against Christianity is driven by this idea that he calls atheist humanism, which Mm -hmm. is this idea that each person has this almost, in some cases they might not even say almost, um, infinite depth of capacity and capability and potentiality within them. Um, And the good life, the good society, is is the society that, allows people to live into that as fully as they possibly can Mm. Um, be the best possible version of themselves, drawing on this inexhaustible inner wealth of potential. Um, And Christianity then is seen as not simply a kind of like mistaken, mostly benign kind of set of beliefs Mm. then, but it's actually seen as something dangerous and corrosive of the good life. Um, because it places limits on our ambition, it places limits on our appetites. It says that there are things that the human person can achieve that we shouldn't aspire to achieve because they're bad. Mm. Um, so, like, I mean, it's not a coincidence that, like, if you, one of the best novels I think that captures a lot of the dynamics today is That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. Yeah, totally. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the poem that that phrase comes from, that hideous strength, is about the Tower of Babel. Because mm. you, you can look at Genesis 11 and see that as a kind of ur-text er for a lot of the issues that we're having now. Even as you talk about de Lubach's idea of atheist humanism, he, in many ways he's describing Babel. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, that hideous strength is never far from my mind. And as I'm reading to Lubac, I'm finding lots of overlap. Um, but I had not read him when I was writing the book. You no, know, a, a friend of mine, like when I asked him about the idea, he he just immediately went into Lubac and was like, you're going to love this.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Well, and just parenthetically,
0: another thing I really appreciated is, you know, one minute you're right. You've got you you're quoting from. Benedict, or from JP two, and then the next minute you're you know you're 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 going to Bavink or um, I don't remember any direct quotations from Kuiper. They may well have been there, but the um we'll will we'll come more to 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 Butzer and and um and and that crowd in in a little bit. I I think I want to move on for just a moment to this idea of the revolutionary society. You've already touched on it, so we don't need to dwell here, but what is this what does this idea mean exactly and what is the what is the logic of revolutionary society and and how it works itself out especially with regard to m- these two ideas uh, the person and mm-hmm. nature
1: so the idea of the revolution as as Groon mostly talks about it, and then Kuiper and Bovink both play with it a little bit, but I like Groon's treatment the best, um, is this idea that basically reality is what people say it is. Um, there's not any kind of intrinsic properties within the world that elicit a certain kind of response or forbid other types of responses. Um, so it rhymes in a lot of ways with what Lewis is going after in the first chapter of abolition of man. Um, when he's going after the green book for saying that, like, you can't say the waterfall is sublime. You can say, I have sublime feelings about the waterfall, but the waterfall has no intrinsic properties in itself. Um, and so that's really what Grun and Kuiper are also going after. Um, and the way that this often cashes out in society is that, well, now everybody has the idea that reality is Plato. That's the metaphor Joe Rigney uses. And I should get to shape the Plato however I want, according to what my desires are, my inner sense of self. Um, and so the problem that develops is that, you know, we're all going to have different desires for how we want to shape the Plato. So we're all going to be kind of at odds with one another. Um, and so the, the kind of best that we can hope for in such a society is basically we figure out ways to stay out of each other's way and maximize each other's potential choices. Um, which really doesn't even leave room for basic things like love and care. Um, inherently involve a kind of going out of yourself toward another, um, Another thing that happens a lot, and this is where churches get hit hard um, is we have this idea because we have this inner wealth of potential, there's this kind of inner, true, authentic self sides inside each of us. Is that the and buffered self? I wouldn't this is a slightly different conversation um, than what Taylor's doing, although it'd be interesting to compare those now that you say that. Um, I'm thinking more of kind of the idea of authenticity. So there's this idea that I have this kind of inner self that is the true authentic me. And society is repressive and doesn't allow that authentic self to exist in the world. Nature is oppressive and doesn't allow that authentic self to exist. And so we have to refashion society. We have to reimagine nature um, to make them maximally conducive. To that kind of inner authentic self being let out into the world. I mean, the very obvious place to go with this, of course, is transgender debates, um, but it's really not limited to that. Um, it's it's what's happened. It's what happens when somebody they're trying to kind of figure out who they are in the world, which is an extremely human thing to do. We all do that. Um, but what I want to suggest we should do is a lot of the answer to that question is going to come to us from outside. Um, It's going to come to us from observing our family. It's going to come to us from observing our place, um, the culture that surrounds us. It's going to come to us um, from the responsibilities that we grow into as we age. There's going to be all sorts of external sources flowing into us, helping us develop an idea of who we are. And I would say that's a good thing um, because that means you're living in relationships of care and affection and obligation um, and all of that is good. Um, What happens under the revolutionary society is you ask that same question, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And you're told that the answer is within you and you have to look inward to answer that question. And I think the practical effect of that is it leaves a lot of people feeling very isolated, feeling a sense of meaninglessness. Um, It's actually incredibly difficult to construct an identity for yourself and a vision of the good life purely out of what's inside your own head. Like that's a really hard thing to do. And yet we expect everybody to do it. Um, And I think a lot of people, it crushes them understandably so because we're not meant to live that way or it's not good for us to be alone um creation account and so what i'm trying to do in suggesting an alternative to revolution is to restore the idea that it's actually good that it's not up to you to define who you are um you could put it in the terms alan noble does in his book you are not your own and that's actually very good news <laughs> so was it was it Bavinck, who went back to
0: that notion of catholicity as embracing the whole, not not just sort of kataholas in the sense of the whole sort of geographical expansion of the church, but um, but of the whole person in every area of life. And I think you you got it, Kirill, right? I, I will just I have to make a plug for this, right? Because I'm a good Anglican. I went yeah. and I went and consulted my uh, my dusty copy of John Pearson's exposition of the creed, and um, which you know for a couple hundred years was at least was what you would read if you're studying divinity as an anglican mm-hmm. clergyman and um and I, I just interestingly um it's right there as a notion uh, that he gives as a as a sort of legit consideration of what catholic the term catholicity denotes in the creed um which i thought was quite uh, quite interesting the church hath been thought fit to be called catholic in reference to the universal obedience which it prescribeth, both in respect of the persons, obliging men of all conditions, and in relation to the precepts requiring the performance of all the evangelical commands. And then he, mm-hmm. quotes, and then he quotes Kirill, interestingly. Um, is this what you're getting at, the notion of mm-hmm. uh, a kind of whole formation?
1: Yes. So... Um, this is something I got from Bob He has an essay on Catholicity where he deals with this. Um, i trying to actually just find the quote now. I, I shared it with a Catholic friend and he rolled his eyes at me and was like, that is not what Catholic means.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and you to, to which you can just happily say it is not only what Catholic means.
1: But, uh... <laughs> right. Um So I'm not going to find it just off the top of my head now. But yeah, the idea that Bavinck has in that essay is that Catholic Christianity, um, one meaning of it is that it encompasses all of life. It is truly universal. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting hearing you read that excerpt from that volume that was popular in Anglican circles. Because it kind of, I have a, a close friend who makes the argument that historically speaking, especially in its early days, the Anglican Church was simply the Reformed State Church of England. Mm. And it was as much a part of the magisterial tradition as Switzerland or South Germany was, or Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of get these innovations later on where you get this idea of Anglicanism as like a via media or things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm PCA, I don't have a dog in this fight, but my <laughs> I have friends in the Anglican world who dispute that and say, no. Historic Anglicanism, as it existed in the 16th and 17th centuries, is basically part of the magisterial tradition alongside the Lutherans and the Reformed, um, and shouldn't be understood as a separate thing. And so it's interesting to hear Pearson and Bovink saying very similar things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Catholicity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it is indeed. And and I'll
0: just refer, this is as a chance to plug Stephen Hampton's chapter on confessional identity in the Oxford history of Anglicanism, which makes the point very clearly that the Church of England belonged among the Reformed family of churches um, during the 16th and, and early 17th century. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> Coming back to the point, I'm really interested to get the place. So if we have time later, I'll ask about James Davis and Hunter, because um, I mean, yep. such a such an interesting, uh, man with, with so much to, to touch on there, but I really want to get to place and you make a lot in the book of the importance of nativeness to place. Right. And I'm, I'm sympathetic. Um, I don't pretend to have read in any depth, but I've learned, you know, I've learned from people like Wes Jackson from Wendell Berry from Beth and Sean Doherty, um, things that have been really formative and helpful for me. Um, but I do have a pebble in my shoe, which I need you to help me dislodge. Um, so I have a difficult time holding together the strong emphasis on place. For example, there is a beautiful section in your book where you, you know you're unfolding um, uh, a bit from C.S. Lewis, in which he's reflecting on something that Tolkien told him. And um, I can't remember if it's you or Lewis. That's got to feel good. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if it's you or Lewis who says, you know, the connection. If, you're, if your family has been raised in this area and they've grown this food on these hills, I mean, it, there's a real sense in which, you know, this land has become a part of you, right? Um, and, uh, and so nativeness in that sense is um, intrinsic to our identification of ourselves as persons and, and so on. Um, so I have a—I love that. At the same time, I have a hard time holding it together uh, with Scripture's call to hospitality, which, of course, you know, the original word is philoxenia, stranger love. And um, so hospitality is—I think it's uncontroversial to say bedrock for a scriptural ethic, but it would seem to presuppose an otherness that jars with, for example, you know, the— the picture of the hills which have fed our ancestors in that lovely section. So I have my my own hunches about how that can be resolved, but I have a feeling that you've given this some thoughts. I'd love to hear your your reflection.
1: Yeah. Two things then. So the first thing I would say is that, um, so Barry has an essay called The Way of Ignorance, where he talks about how we are dreadfully limited people with, very limited knowledge of people of places of ourselves um this is something walker percy talks about in lost in the cosmos we sometimes it feels as if we know about know more about stars that are millions of light years away than we do about ourselves Um, and so because of all that ignorance it can be very hard to know how to act for someone's good or act for a place's good um, because we labor with so little knowledge. Mm. But I think experience, um, patience, long observation, those all help us grow in knowledge. Mm. And so I think it, it... No, I mean, it can also lead to a kind of insularness and a kind of bigotry that closes you off to the outside, which we'll get to in a second. But I think you are better able to discern how to love your neighbor. If you have had enough time to know your neighbor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you don't have that knowledge. I mean, I just think about, I know of many stories of, well-intentioned pastors saying something that was hurtful or harmful to someone in their church. And usually it's able to get patched over because it was an innocent mistake. But that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of, is just the ways in which our ignorance um, causes us to act harmfully without meaning to. And so as we become less ignorant about our neighbors, about our places, um, I think it becomes easier in one way to love those places well, simply because you're knowledgeable. Um, I mean, it's even like when I'm learning, this is perhaps a silly example, but maybe not like when I'm learning to do cook a new dish Mm -hmm. in our kitchen. Um, if it's the first time I'm making it, I'm probably going to screw up two or three different things and it may or may not be something we can eat for dinner. (laughs) I've kind of learned like the whole time I make a recipe, I have to make it late at night because I'll probably screw it up and it won't matter if it's just late at night for me. But if it's for our family and I screw it up, it's like, okay, let's throw the kids in the car and go get Chick-fil-A. So I think, you need the patience and the endurance to be able to observe people in places long enough to know what they need, uh-huh. um, to how to support them. Now, the second piece in this, this is something I heard, an uh, Anabaptist pastor say once, he said, um, the more, the stronger, the center, the more daring the outreach can be. Uh-huh. And so for this pastor and his community, they want to protect and preserve a really strong, thick community within their church precisely because that's what allows them to take more risks when they reach out. Um, and so I think there's, I mean, in thinking about something like hospitality, um, some of the most delightful memories I have of being welcomed into somebody's home, um, most of them, in fact, I think, are memories of being invited to somebody's home who either had lived in that place for a really long time Mm -hmm. and so kind of developed a way of life there that they were able to receive you into, or it was somebody who was just very intentional about trying to make their home feel like a real place and not just a kind of consumption hub. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to be received into something Um, rather than just like walking into a dining room and sitting down for your kind of necessary refueling before you leave and go about your business. Um, You're really received into a place and that has a way of changing you and lingering in your mind. I mean, so like Margie Hack, I wrote a foreword for her book that reissued last year. And as I was writing the foreword, I was recollecting an experience I had in their home 15 years ago. Hmm. And a testimony to how thick that sense of place and belonging was mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in Rochester, that that memory had lingered with me for so long, I think. Yeah, that's
0: absolutely right. I was just reflecting on a few of the, yeah, my analogous experiences, the moments that stand out as, you know, the sort of platonic form, <laughs> you know, if you like, of, of yes. hospitality. Yes. Um, There was a real sense that, no, this is not the shell to which, you know, people return after they leave the office, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and from which they scurry out never to see their neighbors. Um, It's a real it's a real home. And I think at some point, you know, at some point in the book and we might come back to this towards the end. It depends on if we have time. But one of the damaging impacts, you say, of modernity for the family and for the home has been to characterize the family and the home as a haven from a basically violent world right, right. Um, so that even when we think we're being kind of conservative and traditionalist, actually we might be conserving the wrong thing you know we might we might be holding on to the wrong tradition at least it's worth asking the question um, yeah. and so I wonder if part of the answer to the question about how do you hold together native place and stranger love is well, you have a home, how do I put this? You have a home that gives you a different vision of what a family, say, or a home actually is. Like it's not a haven from a violent world. So it's not just a statement of what the home is or the family is, it's a statement about actually what the cosmos is.
1: That, that's right. One of the questions is, is the world primordially order, orderly and peaceable or is it primordially violent and chaotic and the christian answer is it's made to be harmonious and orderly and it's been bent by sin and so it is difficult for us to recognize that and yet that doesn't mean it's altogether obliterated um John Mark Reynolds has a book um, called When Athens Met Jerusalem, where he says this is kind of the classic philosophical question, um, and it's been that way since the Greeks. You have Homer kind of representing the school of chaos and uncertainty and violence, and you have Plato and Socrates representing the school of like orderliness and harmony. And so I think the, the Christian tradition, because we have a doctrine of sin, we have the fall we answer it in a slightly different way, but at the end of the day, we're on the side that says the world is naturally harmonious and peaceable. Um, and because of that, and because we believe that God is restoring the cosmos, not just like private individuals, but he's actually restoring all of creation, um, then it follows that the home is part of that restoration not so that it can be this like defensive bulwark against the rest of the world, but because the entire world is being restored through Christ, and the home is part of that.
0: Personally, uh, I can always cut this out. <laughs> this is an awkward question, but um, you know, I've been reading your book. I've been um, engaging a little bit with Ivan Illich. Uh, really thought <laughs> thought provoking stuff. <laughs> um, where have you found? this avenue of thinking about the family to be most formative at the practical level.
1: My wife and I are talking about this and thinking about it a lot. And I think we'd both say that we don't have it figured out and we're working on it to try and do better. Um, I guess maybe the most basic kind of practical question, it doesn't collapse down to to, to a technique that you can like start doing. Um, But it's a, Good question. Um, so my wife's been reading a lot of Charlotte Mason uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. stuff lately. She's a 19th century British educator. Um, and Mason says that one of the tools educators have available to them in their classroom is atmosphere. Hmm. Um, so what is atmosphere? At the baseline, this is what the founder of Ambleside School says, which is this network of schools that is modeled after her pedagogy, Um, What the founder of Ampleside says is he says, ultimately, education or atmosphere in a school is what allows a student, like when they walk in the room and they encounter their teacher, the headmaster, whoever, if they're made to feel right away, it is good to be me here with you Mm -hmm. atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that's the feeling they have when they walk into school or they walk into the classroom, it is good for me to be it is good to be me here with you, Hmm. then the educational task changes because now you're picking up this book together and it's good to be me here with you learning about math, Mm -hmm. learning about Spanish, because these things are intrinsically interesting and good, and we're going to get to enjoy those together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the starting point. If If it is good to be me here with you in our homes as we share a meal as we welcome somebody in, as we play a game together. Um, I think that probably is the the foundation. And then a lot of the practical stuff is just going to be prudential and have a lot more to do with like your phase of life.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Probably it does like hard and fast rules. Cause like with us now we have four kids. They're age two to nine. Yeah. Um, it puts constraints on some of what you can do, particularly during COVID. Um, and so our house and family life did not look the way we wanted it to during that. It still doesn't in all ways. Um, but it's just phases of life are different. And there's things you can do during some phases that you can't in others. And that's okay. I, I love Charlotte Mason. And um, I, I just go back to – well, so since
0: getting exposed to Charlotte Mason, I have left behind – trying to entice my children to love things with different things. <laughs> no, the thing that's lovely is the thing that you ought to love, you know? And mm-hmm. um, and actually, it comes back to, I think you use the expression, something like, car- uh, I'm going to butcher this, but like carving close to nature. Um, maybe think of the Hopkins poem um, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, he talks about the foot cannot feel being shod. Um, you talk about the difference between a sailboat and a, and a steamliner. One has an elegant; it's above nature, and yet it cuts close to the grain of nature, as it were. So there's that great line about you've got these two types of ships: the sailboat and, you know, the steamliner. One cuts closer to the grain of nature, and it sent me back to Charlotte to this bit in Charlotte Mason, where she talks about the boy who wants to be a sailor, but of course that means he's he's got to be. He's got to be fine with spending time out in the cold and and getting wet. And so childhood, I mean, education will involve that. I mean, we would see that kind of crassly as, oh, he's just got to toughen up. But no, it's not what she's talking about. She's talking about being formed in such a way as to love the lovely, which in this case is, as it were, to cut closer to the grain of nature.
1: You see what I mean? So the example that Ambleside president uses in some of their videos is he talks about, you know, if you have to entice children with a piece of candy to do their reading or to do an assignment in class, what you're really telling that child is you couldn't possibly be interested in this unless I bribe you with candy. The child is going to say, okay, I believe you. I don't like these things unless there's candy, Um, which is a horrible thing to teach. And yet we do all the time. And I think in a similar way, I've used this example in a couple other podcasts, but I think it's important. You know, if we are talking about the biblical witness on sex and gender, for example, and you know, we're really well-intentioned, we're trying to be accessible to progressive people listening in, we don't want to give offense unnecessarily. But what we end up doing is essentially saying, you know, we'd really love to be able to be affirming of this or do that, but darn it, Paul just won't let us, so we're doing the best we can. Um, What that tells people is there's nothing intrinsically good or attractive about this. This is just what Christians have to do because Paul said so. That's evangelistically disastrous. Um, It's also catechetically disastrous because the people in your church who are already Christian are going to hear that. And they're going to believe you. Um, and so we have to be able to talk about Christian faith, the totality of Christian faith as if it's really good news. And like, I mean, I, I, so one of the things I did while I was reading is I, or working on the book is I read some of the church fathers on a number of them have treatises on virginity. Um, including Ambrose um, of Milan, who I I think I quote it in the book. Um, Ambrose says that, and so what he does is he looks at the Virgin Mary and he says, through Mary, the life of heaven is drawn down into earth for the good of the world. Um, And he says that's not just true of Mary. That's true of celibate Christians who live with their satisfaction found in christ rather than in temporal things and in living that way and providing that witness to the world they actually draw the life of heaven down into the world um the practical problems that arise for somebody living celibately in the church remain and so you're that doesn't let your church off the hook for like having to think through those things But I think probably it changes the way that that calling is talked about and thought about. People are hearing, wow, as a single person in the church living a celibate life, I'm able to draw the life of heaven down into my community in a unique way. That's really beautiful and really powerful. Um, And I don't think that we've given a lot of people that kind of teaching. And so a lot of the time, it kind of ends up being very similar to that teacher who has to bribe the students to get them to study something. Um, Implicitly, we're telling them, the good thing you want here is candy. Um, And because you have to do X, we're going to get you to do it with candy. Yeah, yeah. And I think you say this in the book, but I mean, how
0: beautiful it is, right? That one of these states of life, the married state, reaches back to creation Mm-hmm. the other points forward to the Eschaton. I, I think I'm getting this from you. I'm, I'm reading yeah. a number of things at the moment, but that's I think that's... O'Donovan. That's Donovan That's O'Donovan. Well, it's quite good. Again, it must feel good. <laughs> that's
1: <laughs> yeah. why it's good. It's because it's
0: O'Donovan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, Jake, I'm keeping an eye on time. Um, there were there was a question inspired by Olivia Clément, which I wanted to ask. I'm not going to get to. There was another from Hunter. I'm not going to get to it. But um, Kingsnorth, I've been... Uh, Eating up uh, everything <laughs> that I can get my hands on from Paul Kingsnorth lately, so uh, I'll ask you the Kingsnorth question. So the book wraps up on a juxtaposition, a contrast between, on the one hand, what what Kingsnorth calls the you know the machine, and on the other hand, the outlines of a profoundly Christian politeia, you know, common life defined by certain common objects of of love, and I think, unsurprisingly. To me, by that point, the last word went to geography. Geography is the one factor which most determines your proximity to your neighbor and which shapes your relationships to those neighbors. So here's the question. How can relearning our geography, or maybe even learning it for the first time, make Christians more effective as disciples of Jesus? And kind of built into that question, this little sub-question, what kind of shifts will that entail? in our thinking about scope, size, convenience, and the like?
1: Well, maybe start here. So something that has been interesting to me. So over COVID and now kind of coming out of it, I've gotten very into making cocktails at home and cooking at home. Mm. Already really liked barbecue and smoking prior to all of this. One of the things I've noticed with all of those is because you're using real things that you can like hold in your hand, um, when you get done, you have a very clear answer as to whether you've succeeded or not. Like the first time I made a brisket, I did not trim it nearly enough. There was far too much fat. The fat didn't render while it cooked, even though I was a hawk about the temperatures on my smoker. Um, It didn't matter because I trimmed it badly. And so when we served it, it was fine. There's just too much fat left on the meat. Um, I know if I succeeded or not at that point, and I know how to do better next time. So, the second time I did it, I was kind of fanatical about slice like the trimming, and it was a much better result. Um, When you're working with real things like that, you know whether you're succeeding or failing. And I think because particularly if you're a knowledge worker, um, particularly if you live a kind of life where you're seldom working with like tangible things that you hold in your hands, you can go long chunks of time working on something and having no real idea if you're actually doing good work or not. And so I think when we think about geography and neighborliness, um, those are like tangible things you know your neighbors or you don't you have relationships with them where you don't we don't know as many of our neighbors as we'd like because we've got renters on both sides and some of these things just make it hard um but like those are things where you can like you know you you had a conversation with your neighbor that day or you didn't Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah 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 people feel comfortable i mean so this was hilarious the other day um the house, not immediately next door to us, but the next one down. Um, they have a their youngest is the same age as our oldest boy. Uh-huh. So they are like running between each other's house all the time, which we all just love. It's wonderful. But the other day, Theo comes up to our back door and knocks, and I thought he was wanting to play with Wendell. So I open the door and I start to tell him that Wendell's not here. And, he stopped and he's like, no, I wasn't asking about Wendell. Go, oh, OK, buddy, what do you need? And he holds up this honey stick and he's like, what is this? And I'm like, it's, it's called a honey stick. And he's like, is it edible? And I'm like, yeah, you just trim the top off of it and then you can eat the honey that's inside. OK, thanks. And he leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious, wonderful, like, little boy interaction. But afterwards as i was working in the kitchen and thinking about it i was like i'm so glad that we have a relationship with our neighbor where he will like come over to ask that um so it's just been it's been such a blessing to have the folks we do as neighbors um but like those are kind of things where it's just a like pretty clear concrete thing right in front of you what's your relationship with your neighbors like and it doesn't, it's not always in your control, but if it is, is it healthy? Um, as it relates to scope and content, things are church and things like that. Um, I guess one of the things I've been thinking about is that um, it's very easy in the particular cultural and technological context that we're in for church to basically get reduced down to content. Yeah. Um, church is a few songs played by a band up front, and then a kind of talk from the like charismatic leader up front, and that's church. Um, and COVID kind of exposed that, right? Because suddenly, like, church really was content. It was this stream we signed on to watch on YouTube on Sunday morning, and then later in the day, we'd have a d- different stream. We were watching for something else. Um, and I think one of the things that it exposed is that if church is content, um, discipleship is going to be a disaster. Um, because if everyone is only being discipled by content, there's not a church in the world that can produce enough content to keep up with MSNBC or Fox news or mm-hmm. Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Um, churches will lose content wars every time, every time. And so, like, that can't be what church is then, right? Like, it has to be something else. Um, but if it's not content, then we have to ask, well, what is it? And I think particularly as your churches get bigger, that probably gets, which maybe goes back to what you were saying about Keller's article about the challenges as a church grows for discipleship, Um it becomes harder and harder and harder for it to not just be content mm. because of the, eyes of the audience. Um, so like Mark Sayers, who's a missiologist and pastor in Australia, he thinks we're just headed for an era of much smaller churches um, out of necessity because churches are going to start realizing we can't win the content war. And if we're not going to win on content, there's something else we need to be doing. Um, So, and I mean, my church is like 200, 225 people. So we don't know a ton about, or I don't know a ton about what this looks like in larger churches. Um, And I'm sure there are things that can make these kind of problems better or worse. But like that that, I think is one of the challenges that, again, geography probably helps us with. It's like, you know, there can only be so many people living within this certain distance of our church or our home. There's only so many people we can fit in our home or our church for a yeah. gathering. Yeah. Um, Wendell Berry will talk about, um, he says that land needs a certain eyes to acres ratio to be healthy. That's good. Yeah. And so I think there's probably something like that in a lot of areas of life where you kind of need a certain eyes to acres ratio for it to work.
0: Jake, I think on that note, we ought to draw to a close. I've, um, I had the privilege today of speaking with Jake Meter, editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy and author of What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World, recently published with InterVarsity Press. Um, Jake, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me, this was fun. Um, Folks, join us again in two weeks time. I'll have the pleasure of talking with Gracie Olmsted, author of Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We Left Behind. Gracie has a marvelous Substack newsletter, if you're on Substack, called Granola, which I warmly recommend if you'd like to get to know her work prior to that episode. Um, While you're uh, looking around Substack, Paul Kingsnorth's newsletter, The Abbey of Misrule, is also well worth perusing in connection with some of the themes that Jake and I have been discussing today. Uh, That's all for now. As ever, I'm your host, Sam Forniker, and this has been the Ridley Institute Podcast.